Tonight we want to continue our three-part study and a four-part study we plan on doing <coughs> entitled The Priest at God's Altar. We have been looking at Exodus chapter 29 and we saw in the Old Testament the process of becoming a priest uh, with Aaron and his sons. As you remember, and again, I remember when I was a kid, my mother used to drill me in the multiplication tables and the division tables, and the only way I learned it was she continued to drill it over and over and over. So there'll be a little bit of repetition again tonight uh, to catch up for those of, that don't know where we are, and for those of us that's heard it already, uh, maybe uh, it'll be a little more uh, uh, reminder of where we've been. But again, we looked at uh, Aaron and his sons and their induction into uh, the priesthood of the Old Testament. God called the nation of Israel to be a priest, a nation of priests unto him. And because of their sin, because of their rebellion, uh, not only did they lo lose the ability to be the priest unto God, but they lost all the privileges that came with that as well. The privileges of becoming a priest unto God and ministering as a priest unto God, it now has called, uh, come upon the New Testament believer, uh, we as the church. You remember the Bible tells us that you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him that has called you out of darkness and transferred you into uh, the marvelous kingdom of light. So we're grateful for that. So once again, uh, the process is illustrated in the Old Testament ceremony of Aaron and his sons inducted into the priesthood. The same steps involved for them entering into the priesthood are the same steps involved for the New Testament believer uh, entering into the priesthood as well. I'll just mention these in passing by way of redundancy. They were chosen and called of God Exodus 29, 1 through 3. You had to be birthed and born into the right family in the Old Testament in order to be a priest. There were others that were more intelligent, more full of charisma. I had more money, all, all the other things. But if you were not born into the family of Aaron, there is no way in the world that you could become a priest unto God. By the same token, we must be born into the right family, and we are born into the family when we are born again. To them, and it's called upon him to them gave the power to become the sons of God. So we have been birthed into the family of God. If you are not a born-again Christian, you are not a priest unto God, nor can you minister as a priest unto God. Secondly, they were also washed, Exodus chapter 24 uh, in verse number 9. They had to take the blood of the sacrifice, anoint the right earlobe, the right thumb, and also the right big toe. And with that being said, they had to listen to the Word of God. They worked for the Almighty God, and they walked in His steps. By the same token, we have been washed, uh, not with water, but thank God through the blood of Jesus Christ the Lord. Our sins are not just covered, they have been removed as far as the east is from the west, and therefore we are born again, and we have been washed, thank God, and our sins cannot be reminded against us again. They were also clothed in Exodus uh, 29, 5 through 6. If they did not have on the proper clothes, and Moses uh, was instructed of God uh, in Exodus 28 how to make the proper attire uh, for those priests to wear. If they did not wear the clothes that God told them to wear, they could be struck dead if they ministered without the proper clothing on. Well, the clothing that God has given us to minister to uh, is not some uh, pompous robe 
robe uh, with sandals and, and, and some uh, jewels all over it. We have been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, God Almighty at salvation does not make us righteous, uh, but yet he declares that we are righteous uh, through what Jesus Christ uh, has done for us. And then they were also uh, anointed, if you will, uh, here in uh, verse, uh, chapter uh, Exodus 29 and verse 7. Uh, they were anointed. I don't think I put that one on the slide. But there was an anointing that came with what they did. And God has placed an anointing upon us that when we pray, we have an anointing. When we preach, there should be an anointing. Uh, when we witness, there is an anointing. Anything that we do by way of ministry to God can have and should have an anointing upon it. And then the priests were also uh, satisfied uh, in chapter 29, 22 through 37. By that we mean that God made every provision they needed was given to the priest. And for that we're grateful. God has given us everything that we need uh, to fulfill the priesthood of the believer tonight. They were set apart uh, for God's exclusive service and they were to be sold out lock, stock, and barrel. Now last week we looked at the privileges that we have as ministering uh, as a priest unto God. Again we looked at the Old Testament ceremony of Aaron and his sons and correlated that uh, to today. Again, Aaron and his sons as priests unto God, they enjoyed certain privileges that were forbidden by everybody else in the nation of Israel. They could not do it. There were certain things, certain ministries, certain things that only Aaron and his sons could do, and other people of Israel were forbidden to do those things. Again, each of these privileges applies some way, in a special way, to you and I as New Testament believers as well. First of all, they cared for God's dwelling place in Numbers chapter 3. You remember there were three tribes of Levi who were put in complete charge of the tabernacle and each family of Levi, these three families, was assigned a specific area of ministry. No one else in all of Israel could do that. Only those that God specifically called. One family cared for the tabernacle coverings and for the hangings. Another family was in charge of all the furniture and all the vessels that took place and was used inside of the tabernacle proper. And then one family supervised the tabernacle structure uh, along the way. Why? It was carefully organized because it was God's dwelling place. Everything about God's dwelling place had to be done decently, had to be done in order, and it had to be done in such a way that it locked, well, uh, what worked like clockwork. That was important. They had, I mean, if you read the Old Testament and you see how these people took care of the tabernacle, it was an amazing, amazing thing. Well, where is or what is God's dwelling place today? Our bodies. Know you not that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit? God does not dwell in temples made of hands. God does not dwell in the Sistine Chapel. He doesn't dwell in St. Peter's Cathedral. He doesn't dwell in some of these great big synagogues and some of these fancy churches. He don't even dwell in this building. Thank God he dwells in us, the believer. In the Old Testament, God had a sanctuary for the believer. Today, the believer has become the sanctuary. In the Old Testament, God had a priesthood for the believer, but today the believer has become the priesthood unto uh, the Almighty God himself. Uh, today God dwells, is in, dwells in his people. He doesn't just dwell among us as his people. We are his sanctuary. And I'm here to tell you, 
we should no more want to defile this tabernacle any more than a Jew would want to defile the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament time. Caring for our body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, is an act of worship unto God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. What? A living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because he dwells inside of each and every one of us. Secondly, the priest had to keep the fire burning in Leviticus chapter 6 uh, in verses 12 through 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out, but the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. And he shall lay uh, out the burnt offering on it and offer up the smoke of the fat portions of the peace offering on it. Fire shall be kept burning continually on the altar. It is not to go out. Every the morning the priest went to that altar and removed the old ashes, put the new wood on it, that that fire may continue to burn and burn and burn and burn. For if the altar, the fire ever went on the altar, there was nothing but show. There was nothing but smoke. There was nothing but form. And there was nothing by way to give a sacrifice to God. How many Christians today, the altar, the fire has gone out. And I've said it many times, it's the tendency of fire to go out if we do not put new wood on it, put new fuel upon it, fan the flame, take the ashes of yesterday out. It's the tendency of fire uh, to go out in every one of our life. The spiritual application is this. All Christians have a spiritual temperature. We're either cold or we're hot or we're lukewarm. That's the bottom line. And you read in the, the, the book of Revelation, to the church of Laodicea, God said, I wish you were hot or wish you were cold. Now, I don't have, what, I, what I think he means with that, if it's supposed to be hot, then be hot. If it's supposed to be cold, then be cold. I don't like iced coffee. Many of you do, I don't. I like iced tea and I like hot coffee. Follow me? Okay, so if you like iced tea and you like iced coffee, that's fine, but let it be not lukewarm in any direction. And the Bible said that because you are lukewarm, you're either hot or cold, he said, I will spew you out of my mouth. And yet that is the temperature that we see among many Christians around the world today. Jesus said, when I return, will I find faith upon the earth? That means, will there be faithfulness? Faith is both a fruit of the Spirit as well as a gift of the Spirit. And when he said, will there be faithfulness, he's referring to faithfulness. I don't know about you, church, but by a show of hands, do you ever fight lukewarmness? My hand's up. We all fight lukewarmness. It's easier to work for the Lord than it is to wait upon the Lord, to worship the Lord, and to sacrifice to the Lord. And we often think our busyness equals worship to Him. There's a lot of things that you and I can do without the Holy Spirit. The world builds buildings. The world can sing songs. The world can raise money. The world can, uh, uh, can manipulate and politicize. The world can do everything. And the church has learned to manipulate just like a massage, just like the world has done. But the difference is the fact is the fire burning on the altar. And it's what we're doing coming out of a sacrifice of praise to our God. In the hour in which we're living, if Satan cannot beat you down, if he cannot wear the saints out, as it said in the book of Daniel, he will try to get us to compromise. 
And I don't know about you, but I have to fight to read and study God's Word. I still struggle every day of hitting on my knees to seek the face of God. I can think of a variety of reasons justifiably to stay out of that book. I can think of a number of reasons justifiably to keep myself out of the throne room of God in prayer. I can think of a number of reasons why I shouldn't praise and worship God as much as I want to. All of those are lame excuses and the fire is dwindling and dwindling and dwindling and the embers are there that are cool and cooling and cooling. And next thing you know, we go, my God, what happened? We're kind of like what happened to, 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 to Sam, Samson. Samson had such an anointing upon him. He always had female trouble, but he always had an anointing upon him. But when he got with Delilah, he got a haircut in the devil's barbershop, didn't he? And he would say, oh, oh, I'll shake myself just like before, and I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. And oh, he shook himself and the noise was there. But little by little, he let it dry, let it dry, let it dry, and the fire went out. I'll shake myself like before, and the Spirit of God was gone. Having not known, the Spirit had departed from him. We can be so surrounded and so, so many times around the church and around God's people that we don't stop to realize, wow, I've let the fire go out of my life. I've let the fire cool down in my life. So we often, what we normally do is we'll start listening to gospel music, which is great, and we get to feeling good. Or we'll watch some TV preacher, or we'll watch some prophetic word, or we'll watch something on the, on the YouTube that'll build a back. Let me tell you, nothing is a substitute for taking our own firewood and putting it upon our heart so the Holy Spirit can light it. These things are good, but good is always the enemy the best. And God's word, and God's anointing, and God's spirit, and praying to God and worshiping him, that's the best wood you can put up on the altar. He wants us on fire. So we all have a spiritual temperature. We're either hot, we're cold, or we are lukewarm. We must get rid of the past ashes and add new fuel to the altar of our heart and allow the Holy Ghost to stir it up, blow up that fire, and blow that flame upon it once again. We talked about that last week when he said, stir up the gift that lies dormant on the inside. Another thing that the priests did by privilege, not only did they care for their dwelling place, not only did they put fire burning on the altar, but they washed at the laver. In Exodus chapter 30 we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Ye shall also make a, a basin of bronze, uh, with its base of bronze for washing, and you should put it between the tent of meeting at the altar, and you should put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it. And when they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they do not die. Or when they approach the altar to minister by the offering up the smoke of the fire, sacrifice the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet so that they do not die. And it shall be a permanent statute for them, for Aaron and his descendants throughout their generation. Wow. When the priest in the Old Testament ministered, their feet and their hands got dirty. I heard somebody the other day, if you take brand new money that that's, that's comes from the mint, with a matter of weeks, that dollar bill, $50 bill, whatever, will have co traces of cocaine, drugs, and alcohol all over it, saturated. Just a matter of weeks, just passing that money. So the moral of the story, when you handle money, wash your blooming hands. God only knows where it's been and what's on it, okay? But once again, priests got dirty and God commanded them that they wash their feet and wash their hands. If they didn't wash, they would die. 
If a priest wants to have fellowship with God, we cannot come before God dirty. One of the great things that we do when we go to prayer is, God, wash me in your blood. Wash me in your blood. Sanctify me, Lord, as we go before the Lord, not with dirty hands and not with dirty feet and not with dirty minds and not with dirty hearts. But God, wash us afresh and anew. Uh, again, the priest was washed all over in their initial ordination, which is a picture of salvation. But here they were to wash their hands and their feet, which is a picture of continued sanctification that we go through with the Lord every day. Another thing they did was burning of incense. Acts, uh, Exodus chapter uh, 30 uh, and, and verse number 7 again uh, and 9. Aaron shall burn fr uh, fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generation. You shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering, and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. So once again, this is a picture of offering up prayer to God. A picture of offering up our prayer to God. Remember we said last week in Luke chapter 1, when Zacharias went into uh, the temple, it was his lot to work around the altar, uh, the, 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 uh, the uh, altar of incense. It was his time, and he'd been waiting for God knows how many years. And he goes in, and there he's in prayer. The incense rises. He's apparently in prayer. And the angel appears to him. You're going to have a son. Your wife's going to have a son. And you're going to call him John. And he's going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he's going to have many repent of their way. I think he was flabbergasted that God spoke to him. I think he was flabbergasted he met an angel. Why should we be shocked when we pray that God answers? He wants to answer. He wants to speak to us. And yet many times our prayer is more of a dialogue to God when it should be a monologue with God in that we talk to him and he talks to us. That's the beautiful thing about knowing of the word of the living God. So once again, what a privilege to pray to the Father. Priests would burn the incense each morning and evening and fragrance would cling to them. People could smell the flavor of the incense, the aroma of the incense upon them wherever they went. And people would take knowledge of being with the Lord. And we said last week in, in the book of Acts, people had took knowledge that the early church had been with Jesus. Not that they wore a sign. Not that they said, meet me at First Assembly of God. No, by the way they lived, by the way they acted, by the way they ministered, they took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. Does God, does people in this world take knowledge that we've been with Jesus? Or do they know that we're religious? Do they know that we go to church? But do they know that we have been with Jesus? And then another privilege was lighting of lamps. Again, in Exodus chapter 30, in verse 7 and 8, let me read it again. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. It shall be a perpetual incense before the Lord uh, throughout the lamp. Now, the seven-branched golden candlestick stood before the veil at the right of the golden altar. It was responsibility that the wicks were trimmed and that fire was burning upon them. Why was that important? The candlestick primarily spoke, primarily spoke of God's light and God's truth shining through the nation of Israel to the sinful world. That's what God wanted Israel to do. He wanted his light, his love, and his truth to shine through the nation of Israel to the sinful world. But they themselves got caught up in the sin 
And God had to cut them off. And now the responsibility and the privilege of priesthood of the believer belongs to we as the church. Friend, this means that it's applied, this, this candlestick, if you will, is a testimony to the church that we are to embrace the truth and embrace the life and embrace the light of God that we share it with a lost and dying sinful world. If the church looks like the world, we have no truth and we have no light to give them. If the truth, if the church is compromised, we have nothing to offer. And if we as Christians have compromised, we have nothing to offer. So the truth of the matter is, when we are priests unto God, we as a church should always stand up for the truth, for the integrity, for the honesty of who Jesus Christ is, what his word teaches, and walk the walk and talk the talk for the glory of God. The world won't like it, the devil won't like it, but I believe God will love it. And I believe that's where he will deposit his Holy Spirit if we will be faithful. Again, in Revelation 1, 19 and 20. Therefore, write these things which you have seen and the things which are, the things which shall take place after these things, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand or the, and the seven golden sandsticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, the seven stars were the pastors of that church. And the candlesticks were the churches that he was referring to. Not only should the pastor walk the walk and talk the talk, the churches, we the people in those churches, we should also walk the walk and talk the talk. So it refers to the candlestick. We are proclaiming God's love. We are presenting God's truth. And we are emulating God's love wherever we go. And only that, but individually people in the church as well. He said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But on a lampstand, it gives light to all who are in the house. Your light must shine before people in such a way that when they see your good works, they'll glorify the Father in heaven. As a priest, we bear the light. We're not the light, we bear the light. We reflect the light of God's glory in this world in which we live. The Old Testament priest, and so again, some scholars, uh, they believe that the lamp is a symbol of God's word. Uh, for the scripture declares, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Also remember this, the Old Testament priest tended the lamp in connection with his ministry at the altar of incense because prayer and witness goes together. Acts 4.31, prayer and witness goes together. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they all filled the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. So prayer and witness goes together. But notice something else. Prayer and the word of God goes together. Acts 6.4. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So when, the, when I think about that lampstand... I see what a privilege and yet what a responsibility we have to be the light in this gross world. Another thing they were able to do was eat the bread. Eat the bread. Exodus 25. You shall also make a table of a chair wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide, and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make gold border around it. 
And you shall make it for a rim of a hand width around it, and you shall make a golden border of the rim around it. And you shall also four, uh, four gold rings for it to put rings on the four corners, which are its four legs. The rings shall be close to the rim, uh, as the holders of the poles to carry the table. And you shall make the poles of a kale wood, and overlay them with gold, so that with them the table may be carried. You shall also make it dishes and pans, its jars, its libation bowls, uh, with which to pour drink offerings, and you shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the bread of the, pr of the presence on the table before me continually. We also read in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, which I didn't write it down. But each Sabbath, the priest would place 12 loaves of bread upon the table in the holy place, and the priests were permitted to eat it. Let that sink in. The loaves of bread were placed there for nourishment, for physical nourishment, but greater for spiritual nourishment as well. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He's the manna that has come down from heaven. He feeds our soul. He sustains us with everything that we have need of in our spiritual life. Thank God the manna, the heavenly manna, has come down from heaven itself. We eat the bread. You know, one time, uh, a lady from the Syrophoenician woman, she walked up to Jesus and said, my daughter's grievously vexed, torment of the devil. He didn't hear her, didn't listen to her. And finally, she kept aggravating him and pestering him. And finally, he said, lady, I've not come to you. I've come to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. You're nothing more than a dog. And she said, true, master. But even the dog eats the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table. She said, I didn't come for the whole loaf. I know I'm not allowed to hold, have the whole loaf. I know this is for the people of Israel. I didn't come for the whole loaf. I've just come for some of the crumbs because your people are not eating the bread of life. They're, they're not embracing the bread of life. And that's the way it is today. We can embrace and eat of the whole bread of life, the presence of God all the time. Not just for physical uh, sustenance, but also for the spiritualness as well. We must feed on Jesus Christ if we're to have the spiritual strength we need for our journey in this world. No substitutes are going to work. No substitutes are going to work. Friends, we got a lot of substitutes today. We've got instant coffee that takes place of real coffee. We have instant potatoes take place of real potatoes. You, it goes on and on. You know that. But nothing takes good as a granddaddy of them all. And we can eat of the bread of life. Thank God for it. I got to hurry. They would enter into through the veil. When the priest got to the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, they had to stop. It was only once a year on the day of atonement that the high priest could go through all the ceremony cleansing that he's supposed to do, that he could enter into the holy of holies, into the presence of the glory of God. But today, as believer priests, when Jesus died upon that cross, the veil in the temple was ripped in two. The holy place from the holy of holies could be looked into for the first time. And now as believer priests, we don't need somebody interceding for us rather than Jesus himself. But we enter into that veil where, and we can be right in the presence and the glory of God. And only that, we can live inside that veil, church. It's not we can just frequent it. Thank God we can live inside that veil today at all times. Now, I think it's important that we see the beautiful sequence about how the priests, the privileges that they had. Notice, if you will, we start at the brazen altar. 
where the blood is shed for our cleansing. Jesus did that for us. Then we enter into the holy place where we cleanse our hands and feet before we approach uh, the golden altar itself, the throne of God. We feed on the bread, we trend the lamp, but we don't stop there. The veil is opened. We enter boldly, reverently, but we enter into the holy of all holies, into the presence of God. We present our petitions before him. We love him. He's not hiding from us if we have washed ourselves through the blood of Christ, if we're walking in the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. He invites us in. But what has scared me today, church, is there is a number of Christians who I really believe are the Lord, but we've taken the holy things of God and we made them trite. As one author said years ago, we are playing marbles with diamonds. He's the man upstairs. He's our buddy. He's, he's daddy. Uh, he, he's one of the boys, you know, that type thing. We have forgotten the holiness and the awesomeness and the power. And therefore, there are many, even in Christian circles, we do not fear God as holy and powerful as he is because we become too familiar with this holy God. Again, he wants us to walk into his bread. He wants us to live in that veil. But we need to demonstrate a love, a humility, and a reverence, and a respect for who he really is. We do more things under grace because we, we anticipate God's grace is always going to be there for us. But can you imagine in the Old Testament, a high priest entering into the veil? If he didn't do it just right, he'd be killed. The priest, if they didn't do, wear the right garment, they'd be killed. The priest, if they offered up strange incense, would be killed. The things that they did wrong, they would be killed for. And yet today, with all the privileges we have, God, don't let me lose my respect and my, 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 my humility for this awesome God that I serve. Because he's not one of the boys. He's not down here walking on my level. I want to humble myself to see him on his I want to see him high and lifted up. Well, what was in the Holy of Holies? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was there symbolizing the very throne of God. In Exodus 25, 10 through 22, uh, we read about the very throne of God that is there. We know the golden mercy seat where the cherubim sat uh, and the Ark of God's glory filled the tabernacle. And God reigned from his throne of grace and he communed with his people. Each year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat uh, and covered their sins for yet another year. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the blood he shed took away the sins. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which covers my sins. No. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. If he's taken them away, why do we wallow in the memory of them? If he's taken them away, why do we allow the enemy to take those things and beat us over the head with it? If he's taken them away, why do we get down and feel, let our hearts be full of condemnation for the things that God has forgiven us of? And if he's forgiven us, let's forgive ourselves. I said, if he's forgiveness, and he has, let's learn to forgive ourselves. 
And finally, one of the other things that the priests were able to do, and that's offer the spiritual sacrifices to God. In 1 Peter 2.5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. As God's priest, we bring the sacrifices to Him. Thank the Lord. Again, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13 and verse 10, we have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. What do you mean by that? Well, once again, we see here uh, that the word spiritual doesn't suggest immaterial. Because some of our sacrifices we give to God are material. Money we give, they're material. Right? Some of the stuff that we give to church is material. You donate a vacuum cleaner, it's material. You donate an organ, it's a material thing. We give labor, that's labor. But it's the attitude in which we give it that becomes the spiritual sacrifice unto God. Spiritual sacrifice is not just sacrificing praise and worship and adoration. Our sacrifice is not just fasting and prayer. It is uh, doing the things that we do in a proper motive uh, as we worship the Lord. So spiritual means of spiritual quality. If I'm say people, offer their money to the Lord. He'll take it, I'm sure, but it is not a spiritual sacrifice. It's what we give from our heart as priests unto the Almighty God. And we've already noted that prayer is to be offered up to God as a sacrifice unto our Lord. God sees our works as spiritual sacrifices, but to do good and to communicate not uh, for such sacrifices, God uh, is well pleased. The money we give is also a spiritual sacrifice, but the right way. Read about that in Philippians 14, Romans 15. God certainly wants our bodies to be yielded to Him as a spiritual sacrifice unto the Lord. And I believe that when we win souls to the Lord, that's a sacrifice. We are not spiritual salesmen. We're offering sacrifice of God to love when we are soul winners and when we witness for the glory of God Himself. God certainly wants our bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, we also know when we witness for Jesus and win him to the people, we're performing acts of worship to the Lord. And for that, I am grateful. So I hope tonight that you've been able to see, again, the steps that we have been called to become a priest unto God. It's more than just, and boy, I'm a priest, man, I got to go down here to the Salvation Army and buy me some big old robe, or I, I got to go to Mom's Swap and find me a big old crown, and, and I got to get on a marketplace and find me some new sandals so I can walk around looking like a priest. It ain't walking around looking like a priest. It's being one. It's not some Old Testament archaic guy. We are priests to the living God. And we minister as a priest unto the Lord. And as any responsibility and any privilege that God gives us, we've got to be very careful lest we do the same thing that happened to the nation of Israel where he got rid of them. So next week, by the grace of God, I want to end this study, and I want to talk about the pearls, the perils, if you will, of the priesthood of a believer. The perils, the dangers. And if you want to get a head start, look at, read the book of Malachi, and you will see some of the things that the nation of Israel did that ticked off the Lord Almighty. And because he was ticked off, I hate to say it that way, but part of my countryness, that he was anger. And the fact that he was angry for what they did not do and some of the things they did do, do you think God will have any less judgment upon us if we fail in the line of being a priest to God? I hope that you're getting something out of the study because I believe the Lord wants us to be ministers for him today, not only ministering to him, but ministering for him. Amen? 
But above all, we have a great high priest who has entered into the heavenlies. And he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He ever lives to pray for us. And how grateful I am to know that Jesus Christ is praying for me. To Peter, he said, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I pray for you. And many of us in this room and under the sound of my voice, we have been sifted by the enemy of our soul. And we're still being sifted by the enemy of our soul. But rest assured, we have a priest, a high priest, that is praying for us. And I believe his prayers are answered by God. Church, don't be weary in well-doing. You are a king's child. You are born again. God has engraved you upon the palm of his hand, which almost tells me that God carries your picture with him. Wherever he goes, you are before him. Psalm 56 said this one thing I know, God is for me. Amen. I like it the way that Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? A little boy back in the mountains one time said it this way. He, he, he didn't quote it right, but he said, if God be for us, you're up against it. I kind of like his little version too.